all of this is is I think a fundamental source of human connectivity and a fundamental basis for hope because the more we do dialogue with each other the more that we do interact with each other the more we will discover those things to be true Welcome to Perspectives from the Top. I'm Chris Roebuck, global keynote speaker with unique leadership experience from military, business and government, best-selling author and your guide to greater success. Together, we'll discover powerful insights from the world's leading thinkers, doers and trailblazers, the must-know trends, thought-provoking revelations and practical actions you can use immediately. This is your exclusive and personal shop of insight and inspiration to help you get to the top. Welcome to you and all of our perspectives from the top community, now in 42 countries across the world and growing. It's great to share the insights of such successful people with you to help you get to where you want to be. Today's guest is Stephen Green, who started his career in UK government's overseas trade department, moving to McKinsey before joining HSBC, the global bank. Here, Stephen worked across the world in different roles, becoming CEO of the Investment Bank, then Group CEO in 2003, finally Chairman of the HSBC Group in 2006. By then, one of the biggest banks in the world with over 240,000 employees in over 100 countries. In 2010, he then joined UK government as a trade minister, serving until 2013, and is now chairman of the UK's National Natural History Museum and sits in the upper house of the UK Parliament, the House of Lords. Stephen is also an ordained minister in the Anglican Church and an author. Stephen, welcome. One of the things our listeners love to hear about is when guests have had somebody in their career, a teacher, a mentor, a family member who's inspired them to achieve what they've achieved. Have you had somebody like that in your career? It's a good question. Um, Not one single one, no. Um, Obviously, I can think of people I have admired and sought to emulate, um, people who have impressed me with um, with a sense of their purpose and approach to life, and um, it, both in family and not in the family. I mean, in 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 my career, I can certainly think of um, well, the former former chairman of HSBC, who, who who was not chair when I joined it, but 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 became chairman. Um, I suppose in the middle of my career at HSBC, who was a remarkable man by any standards. Um, Willie Purvis, to give him his name. Um, but I can th- think of uh, family members too, like my, my father, uh, deeply influential on me. Um, and I remember uh, thinking about grandparents, uh, and they're, they're close to me because I am one now. Um, and what I noticed, what I remember about my uh, the, the two grandparents that I knew well was they didn't often say very much, and, and they were very, very careful not to kind of issue guidance or um but but you when they did and it was rare it it sunk home and you and i never forgot and i to this day i can remember my grandfather saying one or two things and uh that have proven to be kind of guidance for for later in life so not one single answer for you but but undoubtedly um uh, well-chosen comments by people i care about uh have been very important and and i think that's reflective of the way life goes because as you go through life it's those people uh, who are around you at that point in time be that family when you're growing up going to university and then colleagues at work or professional mentors that you just happen to meet that that's that's really interesting now you started your career in government in in overseas development then you spent a significant time in the commercial world and then moved back into government, which is a interesting dynamic. But the I think the, the thing that is interesting is that one of those is driven by money. The other one is driven by public good, social benefit, however you might want to, men- to, to measure that. But when you look back at those experiences, even though there is that difference, do you think that there are some commonalities that you have seen about what good leaders do in both? And what do you think they are? 
Well, that's a, that's a large and important <laughs> question. That's why we're um, here. Uh, the first point that I would want to make in response is that the, the difference isn't as stark as all that. I think it's a stereotype that people have. Yeah, I, I mean, you can you can point to some examples of, of, of businesses that appear to be moted motivated entirely by financial gain um, but that isn't actually a characterization of most businesses uh, and, and it's not a characterization of uh, of a large bank like the, 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 the one that employed me uh, where there was a long history and a culture of a sense of um, uh, contributing to the common good by financing trade so um, if you said to said to the, the the owners of that business over time and and the owners of many other businesses what are the what is the purpose fairly few of them will simply say maximization of profits um, at the very least they're going to say maximization of profits over a sustainable longer term basis um, and that that will mean paying attention to the the role that the business plays in in the, the communities where it operates in the um, in, in, in the in the public policy of the time and so forth so I, 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 I think it's too it's too binary a contrast so that's my, my first point and of course by uh, on the other side of the scale the, the role I played in government the second time round when I was Minister of Trade in the coalition government uh, was about maximizing um, this Britain's country opportunity for global trade on, on a commercial basis. So it wasn't as if uh, uh, we, we had no eye to what made commercial sense, for the, for, in this case, for the country as a whole or for businesses uh, generally rather than for one business in particular. So like I say, I, think it's, uh, I don't think the differences are as sharp as all that. Um, I, I, the, then there's the question of what is the difference between working in a large private sector corporation, which is what I did. I have never had the experience of working in a small business uh, or in a tech startup or anything like that. I've worked in large, um, rather bureaucratic corporations are my experience of life. Um, and I remember when I was uh, in the trade job um, eight, nine years ago, uh, every now and then civil servants would, who, who I enjoyed working with, by the way, what a high quality group of people they were by you know, in a vast majority of cases, would, would occasionally say to me in the corridor, uh, this must feel rather bureaucratic and slow moving <laughs> to you. And I said, well, don't underestimate the extent to which large companies have got a fair amount of corporate bureaucracy too. Uh, yes, there are differences. Uh, it's not the same, but it's not as different as all that. Um, and then, so when it comes to your question about leadership, um, I, I'm not sure. I think it is that different. Uh, there are some experiences you have to be prepared for, some um, things you have to do as as, as, a, as a minister in, in a government, uh, which are different from what you do as. CEO of a of a of a company or or, or head of a large division in a, in a company, so there are some differences. And one of the, the most obvious one, I think, is that uh, everything you do uh, is accountable to Parliament, uh, and of course to the media, who pay a very close attention, quite rightly, too, to what the government does, um, both overall and in detail. So that, that there's a much more intense public scrutiny of what you do day by day in, 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 at senior levels in the government than is, the, than is the case in business. Even that, I wouldn't overstate. It's not, it isn't night and day. But nonetheless, the difference is rather sharp. And, you, and, the, and when I first started as a minister, at the end of my – I was expecting to retire, and instead of which I ended up doing three years. In, in, in the government as a minister, uh, you, 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 you're, you're not whole, you, you take a, a little while to get used to it. It, it. What you you know you alluded to um, the size and complexity of both government and and large organisations. Now, obviously, HSBC is is one of the larger or largest banks in the world, and the complexity within the operation of, of that organization. Uh, and, and maybe for our listeners to get a flavor of it, and please correct me if I'm wrong, you know, we're, we're talking about uh, an organization with different business lines such as retail, wealth management, investment, banking, asset management, obviously a corporate center. What is it, 130 countries, 200,000 people? And even with the strap line, local yet global, it's how do you maintain direction 
on a strategic level in something that large, but also allow that local freedom of action that responds to local local requirements. And, and is that really about leadership and cascading decision making, or is it about control systems? Out of date about as to the numbers, but it sounds what you what you just said is yeah, the, 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 the thumbnail sketch yeah, sounds sounds about right to me, uh, and it's shrunk yeah. since I left it um, in terms of uh, headcount. But um, you're right. Um, the, the problem is there, not only for HSBC and for one or two other large banks, yeah. but of course also any, for many any, other any any large corporation that's global. Correct, and you get many cultures, many different operating environments, many different regulatory environments, um, and, a, a, and and a need to both coordinate so that you've got a cohesive. Um, uh, operation that can, can cohesively deliver on a business strategy with enough local flexibility or regional flexibility yeah. uh, to, to, to be responsive to customers who are not the same all over the uh, all over the world yes that's that's the in a sense the, the big challenge um, and what I think it means uh, for leadership is um, and for, I think the most important point and this is true is for, for government um, uh, large not-for-profits I don't think there's anything different about this but leadership is not a matter of what one or two people at the centre do only. It is, of course, a matter of what one or two people at the centre do, but it is also uh, a, a, a requirement, a characteristic that you look for in colleagues all through the organisation. And I do remember saying to my colleagues at HSBC, and I remember um, saying the same thing in the context of the government, because I, when I'm travelling a lot around the world and around this country, um, uh, I remember saying leadership is something that everybody has a responsibility for. In, in an important sense, wherever you sit on an organization chart, you have leadership responsibilities. Uh, you have leadership in the sense that you have power to influence both other colleagues um, and uh Customers or whatever, uh, whatever public you're, you're, you're there to serve, um, and the wider community. Uh, you have a leadership in the sense that you have a power to influence um, uh, for good or or, or for other uh, in other ways. So, um, one of the most important jobs that the leadership at the centre has to do is to encourage that sense of leadership throughout the organisation um, and to help. Uh, both oneself and also uh, all those around you engaged in this hopefully common endeavour uh, to understand why leadership is the responsibility of all. I think that's a, a really powerful point for our listeners in that I suppose there's always a, a perception that, you know, the true leaders are the, are the people in the boardroom and I'm only a first line manager and therefore I'm not so much of a leader. But, OK, if if the risk element is that if somebody in the boardroom makes a mistake, the consequences are going to be significantly greater, perhaps, than a first line manager. But in terms of your point about the power to influence, not sure about that. Well, by the way. maybe, yeah, you've been there. So, but but in terms of the power to influence, I, I think that 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 for our our sort of junior leaders listening, that the power that you have to influence people in their lives, even at your level, is significant. Yeah, clearly, clearly. If if you you're you're, you're in the position which, which I found myself in, um, where you have a, a a power of influence over over uh, in a lot of situations over a lot of the, a lot of people and the way they do their work, and uh, yes, of course, uh, and with that goes uh, at the risk of stating a very important obvious. With that goes a, a huge responsibility to 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 seek to do that well to the best of your ability. Um, uh, cl clearly, but but I don't want to let go of that point that everybody has leadership responsibilities. Yes. That, that uh, we're all <laughs> engaged in a common endeavour. Um, I mean, in my own case, I I, I think I've had a, what you might call a sort of serendipitous career in the sense that I didn't start out with a clear with a plan. Um, that, that would have taken me to the different places and to the different roles that I've found myself in over the last forty some. Uh, more than that now, happens <laughs> 50 years. <laughs> I, I didn't start out with a clear plan. I, I think I can detect a common thread in it, um, which is that from the very first, from I remember this at school and then at university, wanting to be involved in um, 
countries that would develop economically and socially developing. Um, yeah. And the reason why I started my career in the civil service is because I specifically wanted to work in what is now the Department for International Development. Well, it's not, sorry, it's no longer that. It's now part of the Foreign Office, um, but was then a thing called Overseas Development Administration. And I actually wanted to work in that. And that's what I joined the civil service for. Um, and, and going from that to I then went to McKinsey and worked on projects in places like Saudi Arabia. Um, and I then went to HSBC, whose core business then and actually still now uh, was was a business that involved financing the, de- the businesses that contributed to the development of uh, countries, for the most part, then in Southeast Asia, but now rather more broadly than that. It's, yeah. The, the the McKinsey experience you have in common with somebody else we interviewed earlier in the series, a certain Peter Woofley, who actually ran a, another financial services institution. And it's interesting from my perspective, having worked at some time with both of you. Um, but one of the interesting things he mentioned about McKinsey uh, was the ethos that there is this obligation to dissent if you see there is a way that something could be done better and that there is that ethos that you're prepared to criticise and constantly update and that that's part of the job and keeping quiet isn't. And I think that's a critical thing in terms of leadership. Yes, I, I agree. And it's a critical term, uh, uh, requirement of leadership uh, of holistic, of good person leadership in, in life more generally, um, not keeping quiet when something is is not right, uh, is is is, our, is one of our most basic responsibilities, um, uh, both in a moral sense and in a sense of how things can be done better um, to deliver more value. Um, so yes, I, yes, I think that I mean, McKinsey, of course, is since I, certainly since I was there, um, I, I, I'm a good deal older than Peter, um, but certainly since I was there, has has undergone a huge change as well. Um, when I was there, you you the partners all knew each other because there were only a few hundred of them, um, and the London office was, I think, I'm right in saying, somewhere between ten and twenty times smaller than it now is. Um, so. Uh, the, the challenge, the challenge of managing culture as you get bigger, is one that a famous management consultant faced. Um, uh, banks have faced, large corporates in the in the real economy have faced, um, and uh, and as we know too, some some of the large non profits have faced. It, it's the, then the next part of your journey, which which I think was the fascinating part, and you've alluded to, is that. A revelation, being a trade minister, that there are organisations other than large corporations that may be run by just one or two people who are on exactly that journey that you're talking about, the founder, entrepreneur, moving into the small and medium-sized and scaling. Give us some insight into some of the interesting things you experienced and saw uh, when you were a trade minister, both in the UK and supporting those organisations grow and develop across the world? Well, I, I, I should say I hugely enjoyed my time. I, I said up front I would not do it for longer than three years, and I did it for almost exactly three years, and there were specific reasons for that. Um, and I'm very glad I did kind of set a, set a, set a, a timetable so that everybody understood that I was there for a period of time. Um, uh, I, I, I hugely enjoyed it. Um, visiting businesses both around this country and uh, in different contexts around the world was always exciting, exhilarating. You you always learn new things. And I, I must have seen every uh, businesses in every sector, in every in every, si- every every size. And I could write the book. Uh, I'm not going to, but I could write the book of wonderful stories of 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 of. Um, Companies that had come from nowhere and have got all the energy to take the world on, uh, and were going after it in 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 the in the gutsiest way you would want, um, and, and and I'm afraid others where there was evidence of of, of coasting, of uh, the quiet life, of um, too too too, too easy um, tendency to head off to the golf course on a on a Friday and and so on. Uh, all this, of course, is long before we got to the pandemic and changed modes of working. Let me hastily add, but um, 
you know, it, it's uh, so. So yes, I did encounter wonderful examples of uh, of people who had um, created businesses out of nothing because they'd spotted an opportunity and because they got in their in their bones or in their family background or whatever it is uh, that sense of um, I, can, I can go out and do something here. And um, and they were creating jobs, and they were growing, and and uh, I always I loved quoting um, a study which had the had been done before I got there, um, which showed that um, businesses that got into the export, small businesses that got into the export markets, grew faster, created more jobs, were more profitable, and lasted longer than those that didn't. Uh, and I saw every, almost every day, evidence of that point. The, the fascinating thing is, I think you know, you mentioned that that there are people who are perhaps natural entrepreneurs, which, which poses the wider question. And I think an element of that is uh, attitude to risk. Um, in the, if you have risk aversion, you're more or less likely, rather, to to become a founder. But the the mindset question I find really interesting. So is there a group of people who are natural entrepreneurs and is there a group of people who are corporate executives and that there's not much crossover um, between the two and they are different mindsets or different attitudes, however you put it, or do people move between the two? Because we've seen we've seen entrepreneurs and I won't mention any names of certain um um, cab companies, for example, who grew globally, um, who might have been okay setting the business up, but couldn't handle the organisation when it became global. Yeah, I, I mean, I think this is a this is a subject for PhD theses. <laughs> the the, um, the the classic entrepreneur who's who, who's um, has got a vision and got the drive. And got the creativity and got the personal charisma to take people with them. It's very rare that it's a single person. It's more normally one person inspiring a small group of, of people to work together on the vision. Um, uh, tip, so often is also is not the person who's got any interest in process and uh, risk management and uh, all all of the other tools that you which are unavoidable in a larger business. Um, uh, and that, that's one one classic syndrome. And another one, of course, is the generational change when you move from the founder to the next generation. Um, the uh, I mean, it, it just I don't want I don't want to name names, but one one wonderful com- company that I saw um, in my time as trade minister, where the founders um, were two people from South Asia, from the from the subcontinent. Um, and they were a pair of brothers, and one was the natural product developer and backroom person, and the other was the natural sales and marketing figure. Just by character, you could tell which one was going to do which of those two roles. Um, and the and the and the head of the sales and marketing side, the one who'd led that, had from his from a small boyhood been going around the um, Saturday markets in the town where they'd grown up um, looking for deals and, and, uh, uh, and so on. You could, he was just, this was just in his bloodstream. Um, and then his son, uh, who was by that time in his thirties, I guess, um, had been to business school. Um, he got, he got all of the same drive, but, but of course he, by that time got a, the, the company they 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 had created was by that time quite sizable, and B uh, you've got in the next generation somebody who's got all of that formal knowledge that comes from having uh, been to been to one of the best business schools. So that transition was was a fascinating one to watch, and I it would be fascinating to see how that plays out um, over the longer term. So y- y- yes, you've got this contrast between the the, the visionary who starts something out sometimes alone, but more often in a small coterie of people, um, and, uh, uh, and, and how you take – the more successful it is, the more they need to grapple with some more conventional textbook business kinds of issues. No, no, I, I think it's really interesting, your comment, because uh, on Monday we have an interview coming out with a guy called Lakanath, who is the chief executive of an investment vehicle that Siemens has looking for founders and entrepreneurs in the tech space across the world. And Lak made the comment, you know, I said, well, who ends up being the best founder and scaling? And he said, the ones that 
come out best are often the ones who didn't know that they were entrepreneurs and founders, went into the corporate world, tolerated it for five years, couldn't take it anymore and went out and became a founder. But because they were in the corporate world and had a basic knowledge of what should be happening to grow in a structured way and could benchmark quality in terms of people, process and action, when they come to scale, they can handle it much more than the entrepreneur who's never been in that world. Yeah, that has the ring of truth to me. Uh, I, the other thing, of course, about a, about a successful entrepreneurial leader um, is that they, they need to be the kind of people who can attract extremely able people to work with them. Yes. Um, and they need to know about delegation. I mean, it is often not the case that founders are particularly good at delegation, but it is, <laughs> or not instinctively good at delegation, but it is actually something you need to do and do well. Uh, and you need to... Uh, it's often said you need to be able to delegate to, to, to remain sane. Well, that's not enough. You need to be able to delegate on the basis that you have chosen people to whom delegation um, uh, makes sense, for whom the delegation makes sense, people you've got confidence in, um, uh, people who, who you're not afraid to say are better than you in certain in, 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 in some aspects. It, it, uh, so, Stephen, you have beautifully picked up one of Lack's key points, which is the main problem he has helping organizations like that scale is when the entrepreneur is not capable of delegating effectively to the technical experts that have been brought in to help them scale. You must have, so, so effectively, you, 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 in your position of trade minister, were effectively seeing the same sort of scenario then. Well, yes, um, indeed. And, and as I say, I saw this, I made it my business to I travelled a lot around the world. I did I know, 58 countries in three years or something. Um, but I also travelled around this country. I made it my business to be in every, uh, in, in all three uh, of Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland and in every English administrative region, there are nine of them, um, at least twice a year. And each time I did, the, 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 the team would put together a programme for day or two. Um, uh, often it would be a speech to a local chamber of commerce um, and a visit to a handful of com uh, companies and, and something like that and so forth. And that's where I got all of that uh, in, uh, well, I, I, the, the, the vivid um, insight into into the truth of some of the things we've just been saying. Because you could, you could see, and like I said, you could see the real success stories and you could see the other kind, um, the, 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 the underwhelmers, the, um, the, those, that, those that just weren't achieving all that they could. Yeah. Now you spend much of your time in the House of Lords. Uh, for the non-UK listeners, that's the upper house of the British Parliament. Uh, you're chairman of Asia House, which builds business links between UK and Asia. And you are the chairman of the trustees of the Natural History Museum. Um, again, for non-UK listeners, that's the UK's natural, sorry, National Natural History Museum. 200 years old research establishment with a global reputation. Uh, it's the country's legacy for the future. And to, to give listeners a flavour, it's 50% government funded, but you have to find 50% yourself um, with revenue generating activities. Tell us, because that, that's a really interesting challenge. It's not just a dry museum. It's a living, developing legacy entity business. How do you, how do you make it work, Stephen? <laughs> Uh, first of all, I, I love it. Um, I've got one more year to do. Um, I'm at the end, uh, coming coming down the, towards the end of my term. I'll have done it for nine years. Uh, and in fact, uh, just yesterday, or Monday rather, we uh, appointed our my, my successor. We announced the appointment of my successor as chair, who will take up uh, the role in the latter part of 2022 or early 23. Um, Sir Patrick Valance, to give him his name, who is the presently the government's chief scientific officer. So we're yeah. extremely delight, delighted by that. Uh, for, for my money, uh, the Natural History Museum is um, not, not merely fascinating um, for some of the reasons you just uh, spelled out, but also because its subject matter 
uh, has never been more important than it now is. Um, it's, it deals in um, environmental uh, uh, connectivity. It seeks to understand the challenges to the environment from an increasingly uh, urbanized planet. Um, uh, and for all the obvious reasons, um, our voice needs to be heard more and more clearly um, in the whole climate change, environmental degradation debates, um, and in the corridors of, of government as, uh, as, as uh, uh, governments seek to respond to the climate challenge and work out what it means to be a carbon neutral economy. Um, so it's, it's, it's absolutely um, critical as well as fascinating. Uh, it is by some measures the largest natural history museum in the world. Um, uh, along, I mean, by other measures, it's second to the Smithsonian. Um, so it depends a bit what you measure, but it is one of the three or four most important natural history entities on the planet. And like you said, it's got a large scientific research base. Um, so the challenges are many and varied. Uh, one is ensuring that the science is is, is leading edge uh, and has real global authority, uh, making sure, therefore, that we're able to compete in the in, in, the, in the market for scientific talent. Um, and one of the things about us is that our, as it were, competition for that in that respect is not so much the other big cultural museums of London as it is the, muse as it is the universities. Um, and so uh, engagement with the universities is a pretty important dimension of all this. Um, you are dealing in the Natural History Museum with people who in the vast majority of cases love their jobs passionately, believe passionately in what they're doing, and it's almost as if they're being paid to do their hobby, uh, although that's they put it in a much more significant way than that. Uh, that, that, uh, that gives it an extraordinary atmosphere, I believe. Um, it's a museum uh, which has a beautiful building in in uh, in 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 uh, in um, uh, Knightsbridge that many people will know well. Um, it has uh, a, in normal times pre the pandemic uh, an enormous number of people visiting it. At its peak, it was over five million because it's not that at the moment. Um, I'm hoping that we will get back up to that in the next two to three years. Um, and uh, I can't tell you the number of times when I've spoken to friends of mine or business colleagues and acquaintances of mine and they've said oh I took my grandson or granddaughter there just recently and they loved it and indeed of course it is it's the it's the um what's the word it's the nurturing place for young people getting interested in the natural environment and uh, I, I can't think of a more important role for it to be playing now than that I, I think it's. I, I agree. It's a. It's a national institution. But to your point, if you think about that nurturing element, if you think about the number of children who have gone through that institution to see what's in there in the last two hundred years, and have then been inspired to become scientists, the contribution that that institution has made by virtue of that influencing uh, impact, is, is colossal. And I ended up there um, as chair of the board, um, not, not by accident, I don't mean that, but, 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 but not on a planned basis. It wasn't something that I aspired to be. Um, I was stepping down from the trade role that I mentioned. I remember um, uh, coming across the then Department, Secretary of State for Culture, who was the overseeing government body for, for all of the big London institutions, cultural institutions. Uh, and they said to me, well, what are you planning to do? And I said, well, one of the things I want to do is um, in the cultural domain. And they said, well, have you thought about the chairmanship of the Natural History Museum? Because that's coming up. Um, it's not in their gift. It's a public, uh, a public process of, of competition and appointment. Uh, so it meant that I found myself applying for the, for a job for the first time for about forty years, um, but I but I talked to a few people and I did apply and I'm very fortunate to have been given the opportunity. Um, it is both similar and different to other things. It's quite a large organisation. I mean, not not like the bank and not like government, but nonetheless it employs a thousand people. So uh, you, the processes matter. Um, the way in which we approach uh, uh, development of colleagues matters. Um, you are, as you mentioned, we have to find a lot of our own revenue from, from commercial undertakings. And so we care about our online business, our catering business and so forth. Um, so it's quite many sided. Um, and yet at the end of the day, it's not that different. 
at the end of the day, as a board and as a senior management, it's got a strategy. It needed to have an articulated strategy. We we did we worked on that uh, 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 until we promulgated it two or three years ago. Um, and, and then you have an executive team who has to see it through, both in terms of the science side, the, the normal operations, the front of house business, um, and its public presentation. So uh, nothing in that sentence would, would, would be different from what you'd be saying to uh, – uh, in, a, in the context of a bank or in terms of uh, a government department. Actually. And like a commercial organisation, to be honest, it needs to get money in to be able to do what it needs to do. Yeah, and you need to figure out where do you want to invest. Um, we, we have quite an investment budget. We are all the time looking for new scientific investments. We need gallery refurbishment from for, for the front of house and so on. Um as you say, the, the, the same sorts of things that a, that a business leader has to be asking themselves. And, and also your role in Asia House, give us a little bit of a flavour for that, given the sort of dynamic between the West and Asia and China um, and how you see that developing. Well, uh, uh, Asia House, I also enjoy. Asia House, is, it's a small, small entity. It employs uh, um, less than two dozen people. It's a uh, as you mentioned, it's a business-supported centre which convenes people who have a, effectively a business interest in uh, uh, Asian connectivity. Um, I found myself in the chair of that because of my obvious, uh, obviously because of my Asian experience. I lived in Hong Kong yeah. for many years. I've travelled in uh, throughout Asia a lot. Uh, have up until the pandemic continued to travel a lot uh, in Asia. Um, I uh, have always enjoyed my time in China. Um, uh, I, have, I have not been there now for two years. And, of course, uh, the, the, the nature of the relationship between China and the West has got more complicated in recent years. Um, um, but on the principle, which I very strongly hold, that, that, that engagement is, is key, um, uh, not least because China is what it is, the, the world's second largest economy and one of the two global superpowers on the world stage for the rest of this century, it is important whether you're in business um, or in public policy or in uh, cultural activities of one sort or another to engage with China. I mean, as the Natural History Museum, we have we have links with Chinese natural history ventures. Um, we uh, we have uh, had, had close conversations over the environmental COP that's coming up and so on. So whichever, on, on any dimension, the engagement with Asia uh, is, I think, profoundly important for all people in this country. And that's why I, when I was asked to take the chair of Asia House, I said, absolutely, yes, delighted, honoured. It's, it's a fascinating area. One thing um, that many people might not know about you, which links into, I suppose, all the roles you've had, is that for a number of years you've been a, a minister in the Church of England. How does that role and its underlying beliefs sort of contribute to the way you have worked as a leader? Um, just you know, that's just that simple age-old principle: treat other people as they, as you would wish to be treated. How do you think that applies in modern-day business, and whether it actually can make businesses more successful, or sorry, organisations more successful? I, 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 as you say, I've been a I've been a, uh, an ordained minister in the Church of England, or in fact in the Anglican Church, because part of that was time was in Hong Kong, which is not part of the Church of England. Oh wow! So you were ordained in Hong Kong? Yes, I was, and uh, um, and so for actually, what is it now? More than thirty years, I've been functioning in that role, and it's most of the time um, helping out at your local church, which is what I do uh, where I live here in London, um, um, and. Uh, um, I suppose one, one important thing to say about what it does not mean is it does, it does not mean that you have got any um, uh, authority or license to use your position in your workplace as a sort of pulpit, if you will. Yep. Um, yeah, yeah. It, it, although I do not believe it's kind of compartmentalized into one corner of life without affecting the other part of life, how could I believe that? Uh, I also uh, don't accept that it's right to use a position of authority uh, or, 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 or any role at all, really, um, to, 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 as it were, pontificate um, yep. 
in, in a business context. So that's putting the point negatively. Putting the point positively, one of the most powerful facts of, of the modern age is that in any environment you find yourself, and certainly in business and certainly in government, you are working with colleagues from all over the place, from every conceivable um, culture, uh, every conceivable faith commitment, um, uh, where, where many people say that's no faith. Um, uh, and, and you... And, and so there's a rich variety, a huge variety. And, and I, uh, for me, that variety is itself exciting. And I love, uh, if people want to talk about it, I love listening because you learn so much. Um, and uh, um, indeed, I've done some work in, in a sort of um, cross-cultural comparative context with, with philosophers and theologians, um, which I just enjoy enormously. And now I've got to a stage in life where I've got a bit of leisure to, to do that. <laughs> you, can, you can do it. Yeah, um, but the serious point is that um, we live in a multicultural world. We live in a connected world. Um, it brings its own challenges, of course. But I wouldn't for a second want to go back to the sort of monochrome experience of, uh, of let's say, 50 to 100 years ago. Um, this is so much more diverse and lively and interesting. And that shows itself in... Um, it showed itself in the bank, which, as you said, was in 100 and something countries. And you can imagine every every conceivable background showed itself in government in the same way, showed itself in the National History, Natural History Museum. Well, in all of these cases, this is, this is normal life experience of this day and age. What, what you also want to believe, and you said it, is that there are some common principles about how you treat other people. Yes. Um, uh, I mean, to me, it is interesting that in the Christian Gospels and in Confucius, you can find the same so-called golden rule, um, quote, indeed, it's also in the Hebrew Bible. You, you know, it's all over the place. I think everybody recognizes that that's a principle of interaction with other people, um, treat others as you would wish to be treated by yes. them, see the best in others and not their worst, be expect, hope to be judged by your best and not by your worst, just as you would judge others by their best and not by their worst, and so on and so forth. Um, all of this is, is, I think, a fundamental source of human connectivity and a fundamental basis for hope because the more we do dialogue with each other, the more that we do interact with each other, the more we will discover those things to be true. What I think is really powerful, though, is that the the comments you just made about what this means in terms of um, people's best, people's worst, treating people as you would wish to be treated, all of those things are often quoted as the sort of classic motherhood and apple pie we should be nice to each other stuff but but certainly my work when speaking around the world one of the things i always do is i always ask the leaders i'm speaking to what did the best boss they ever had do on a day-to-day -day basis that made that individual so special to them and that's why they gave everything to that particular boss and the things that you mention that people confuse as this, oh, it's the sort of applehood and mother pie, um, um, apple pie and motherhood stuff, are things that people say their best boss did that inspired them. So those actions do, I think, make a real day-to-day -day uh, impact on people at work. The symbolism of, your, of acts you take in a leadership capacity, and again, I well, to remake the point I made earlier, that leadership is not only about the, the people in the centre, it's also about anybody engaged in a common enterprise. The symbolism of specific actions, which may seem unimportant, but are watched by others, um, is for better or for worse, powerful. Um, and I suppose one of the points, if you are in a senior and central position, means you need to... Um, uh, be conscious that, that, that others will look at you for an example and it may be a good example it will sometimes be the bad example so look at that look at that guy and don't do what he does um, or worse still look at that guy uh, uh, and, and the things that the things he does that, that obviously pay up, pay off for him let's emulate them so you're actually having an influence for bad um, no the, the symbolism of what you do and what you say um, matters powerfully. What is really interesting is that, that just the simple act that, on that list, one of the things that always comes up is they showed they cared about me as a person. 
And everybody says, oh, that's very fluffy. But the evidence from the research studies is that if leaders show their people they genuinely care, those people can give up to 25% more effort just because their bosses show they care about them. So it's not just this soft, fluffy stuff. Extra effort means better performance equals more money. Yeah, well, uh, indeed so. Uh, And you see, I don't think this is uh, a matter of saying, oh, well, that's a bit of a cliche or it's motherhood and apple pie. Um, The fact is that things um, like uh, become motherhood and apple pie or they become cliches because they're true. Um, And I think this is a a powerful example of it. It, Why do people say this is a bit of a cliche? It's 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 all a bit kind of woolly and fluffy or or self-evident. Answer is because it's important. And, and it's important because it's important. It's not important because it leads people to be 25% more productive, by the way. Uh, it's important because it's important. It's important because it's treating human beings as human beings. Um, it is, of course, all often easier to say that than to live it out. And uh, anybody sooner or later will find themselves in uncomfortable dilemmas um, where where exactly what that means for what you say and do next may not be clear. Um but but that does not mean the fact that there are difficulties that we can all find ourselves in uh, sometimes does not mean that you you abandon the principle. On the contrary, you are reminded of the importance of the principle. And in the end, in organisations um, that I've worked in over my career, in particular the military, it's that creating a we, not me ethos, where actually that. Everybody is working on that principle of treat others as you would wish to be treated. So, Stephen, what is the next project? What are you going to do next? Another book, perhaps? Well, uh, another book, not in the near term. Um, Although what I am doing, which I uh, am really enjoying and which is making more progress than I thought that it might necessarily when I started out, is working with a group of um, academic uh, philosophers, in fact, um, I've, I've alluded to this a few minutes ago, um, to look at the way in which the different cultural traditions of the world tends to think about some of the underlying questions about what is important to us all as human beings. Um, one of them being this uh, response, what is the nature of human nature and what is our relationship to each other? Those kinds of questions. And so we've been looking at uh, what what is the a tradition in in China, in Japan, in in the Muslim world, in 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 the in the Indian world, uh, uh, in 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 the European context, in in Africa. What 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 are people? What have people had to say about those kinds of questions down the ages? And we're trying a little bit systematically to think about these questions. And I tell you, it's endless fun. Um, I, I like to think that at the end of the day, we'll get to a book, and it's a book of which will be a collection of essays done by the different people. Um, so it's not my book. Um, uh, but I've, I find this – I've got the luxury of having a bit of time to be able to do that now. Um, I couldn't have done it 10 years ago, 20 years ago. Absolutely couldn't have. Um, but I'm enjoying that. And, I, and I, you know, I, I like to think it will be a useful contribution to a dialogue which needs to take place in an increasingly globalised world. I, I think it's absolutely fascinating. Finally, one thing you think every leader should do more of to be a better leader or colleague do more of to be a better colleague? Um, I mean, spend, spend time with, with people who... Um, who are part of your organization who you wouldn't normally come on come in contact with is, is one obvious thing but I in a sense um, in a sense the answer will differ between different people because we're not people are not all the same and some people have um, great gifts in, in in certain directions in the way they think about businesses and other kinds of issues or challenges um, uh, uh, some will be better at the strategizing some are better at the um, personal interaction so I, I think the answer is that it probably depends and it, well in that sense then just be as good as you can at what you're good at and get better at what you're not necessarily as good at yeah be, be ready to be a i mean the, the other way of putting this is be ready to be a lifetime learner which is a brilliant point Absolutely brilliant point. You, you, Absolutely you're brilliant never point. too old to learn new things. You're never you're never too old to correct your own mistakes. I think you're never too old to be past redemption. Um, you're never too old to recognise 
where you could have done things better or differently, and that might be might be better in an efficiency sense or better in a moral sense. So, in one sense, always be your own sternest critic and 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 be a lifetime learner. Stephen, that is so good. And how can people learn more about what you're doing, Natural History Museum, Asia House, and you? Well, I, I, I'm not sure. That, uh, I'd rather they learn more about Asia House and about the Natural History Museum than they did. Uh, uh, they, 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 can, they can learn about both of those by going to their websites and uh, and uh, uh, and clearly uh, other things I do in the House of Lords and elsewhere. You, it's all, all on the yeah, it's, it's on House of Lords website, etc. And for all our listeners around the world, I would say, having been there many times, if you haven't been to the Natural History Museum in London. I don't care where you live in the world, you need to go. (laughs) Stephen, thank you so much. That was absolutely excellent. I enjoyed it. Thank you very much. Cheers. Cheers. Thank you. We tend to think of organisations as being homogenous, reference back to our personal experience of that organisation. But in the case of organisations like HSBC, what we see is only a very small part of the totality of a very diverse organisation. It's a bit like an iceberg with 90% or even more hidden. In his time with HSBC, Stephen worked with and led the diversity of different businesses, different roles, different cultures, different nationalities in the bank. He then interestingly experienced the same in his role as a trade minister, dealing with growing organisations of vastly different types. Both build into Stephen's view of the importance of diversity, of understanding other people, of treating others as you would wish to be treated, and of lifelong learning. Now, whilst these don't appear to be specific actions, everybody listening can ask themselves the simple question. What am I doing about developing my diversity of thought, my diversity of network, and if a leader building diversity around me? What am I doing about proactively understanding other people, treating others as I would wish to be treated? What am I doing about constantly learning to grow and develop to be my best self? Now, I strongly encourage all of you listening just to ask those simple questions of yourself and think about how you can do better in all of these over the next weeks and months. They will help you get to where you want to be by encouraging others to help and support you in the future. Now, don't forget that in a week, I will give you a more in-depth view of the key takeaways from Stephen's interview, my insights and three ideas for actions in my reflections on the top. If you've used any of the insights you've got from previous perspectives from the top guests and they've helped you, send me your success stories. I would really love to hear them. Also, don't forget to sign up on the website so you don't miss any of the great future guests over the next year. Thanks for tuning in. Check out the show notes from today's episodes at perspectivesfromthetop.com where you can not only enjoy additional resources from today's show, but all previous ones. If you haven't already, subscribe to the show on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your favourite podcasts so you don't miss any. And if you really enjoyed the show, please give us a five-star rating and review. Have a question or comment? Let's discuss it. Message me on LinkedIn. Perspectives from the Top is produced in collaboration with Detroit Podcast Studios. So have a successful week. Use today's new learnings and actions. And remember, it's onwards and upwards. See you next time on Perspectives from the Top.